This morning is October 31st. It is uh, Halloween or Harvest Festival or All Saints Day, whatever it is that we call that. Our message this morning is Jesus, the Lamb of God. Those of you that were here Sunday, uh, Wednesday heard a very similar title. The message won't be similar. Uh, we had a tragedy Wednesday. I taught on John and uh, the Lamb of God, and we had an exciting service where we answered a lot of questions and really got into depth in the book of John, and it didn't record. So we're going to revisit the issue, not in as much detail in the book of John, but more on the topic of the Lamb of God, and substitute this for uh, that message so that we'll have a continuing series. Uh, Go ahead and turn to John 1. Uh, John is the fourth gospel in the New Testament. John 1 is found on page 1176 in the Thompson chain, but we're actually going to start on the next page in the 29th verse. What we've had happen so far in the book of John as we get into this title, Jesus the Lamb of God, is we've had the mission statement for John laid down. Jesus came to bring you life. The book of John and John 20.31 was written for the purpose of you believing that Jesus is the Christ and in believing that, that you will come to Him and have life. Uh, the book of John's written that way because death was the problem for mankind and life was God's solution. We move from that to the topic of Jesus coming to reveal the Father, making the Father known. John 1.18 says that nobody had ever seen God except God the One and Only who was making Him known or understandable, seeable, comprehensible. And we taught about that, how Jesus' purpose on earth was to make the attributes of the Father visible to people. Then we moved into the messianic expectation, which leads up to this message. People asked John the Baptist, are you Elijah? Are you the prophet? Are you uh, the Christ? And in all of those questions, you see what they were looking for. And we thought about that in, in great depth so that you could see Israel was somewhat confused. They had scriptural ideas about what, the, what was coming, but their application of them was wrong. No different than the church today. Scriptural ideas about the second com- coming of Christ, but most of the time the application is way off base. Uh, it's interesting to note as we get into this that in the first century, they were looking for the conquering king. That's what they they wanted. A fiery prophet in Elijah who would burn all the enemies of God, put to death all the false prophets. A prophet like Moses who with ten plagues would bring them out of Rome. Or a a Christ that was an anointed king and would come in and conquer Rome. That's what they wanted. And what they got announced was a Lamb of God who is gentle. Well, most people today, when you talk to them on the street, talk about how God is love and God is gentle and God is caring and merciful and all of that is true. But when they envision the second coming, they envision a big reward ceremony where this gentle lamb is just loving everyone. And oh. The irony in all of this is in the first century, they're waiting for the conquering king and got the gentle lamb. Now, in our time, they're waiting for the gentle lamb and will get the conquering king. Yeah, it's, and it's, it's amazing irony, isn't it? Well, that brings us to John's announcement. They were waiting for Elijah. They were waiting for... Uh, the Christ. They were waiting for the prophet. And what did they get? John 1.29 The next day, John, this is John the Baptist, saw Jesus coming toward him and said, Look, the Lamb of God who takes away 
the sin of the world. This is the one I meant when I said, a man who comes after me has surpassed me because he was before me. I myself did not know him, but the reason I came baptizing with water was that he might be revealed to Israel. Then John gave this testimony. I saw the Spirit come down from heaven as a dove and remain on him. I would not have known him except that the one who sent me to baptize with water told me, The man on whom you see the Spirit come down and remain is he who will baptize with the Holy Spirit. I have seen and I testify that this is the Son of God. They were waiting for a conquering king and the herald, the guy who came with the purpose in the words of Isaiah of making level paths for the Lord so that He might be revealed to Israel, says, Behold, the Lamb of God come to take away the sin of the world. Now, this was shocking to them for a lot of reasons. One is, when they thought of a lamb immediately, the first thing that comes to mind is a sacrifice. And what happens to sacrifice? They die. If he was going to die, how could he be this king that endured forever? How could he be the one that ushers in the messianic age with a resurrection from the dead if he's going to die? So that was a problem for them immediately in their context at their time. Furthermore, he goes on to say, this is the one on whom the Spirit remains. That was a concept that they may or may not have understood. The Spirit had enabled people in the past. It enabled you to be a king. It enabled you, Bezalel, to be a craftsman. It enabled a prophet to speak. This guy had the Spirit, we later learned, without measure. Uh, he had the Spirit remaining on him all of the time. No sin to separate him from God's Spirit. Furthermore, he said, this is the one who comes to baptize you in the Holy Spirit. One of the most profound things about John is that he was baptizing Jews, and that was a problem. Jews baptized proselytes. They baptized people to become Jews because other people were dirty and needed to become Jews. But John baptized Jews, showing them they were dirty and needed to get right with God. One more issue here. He also goes so far as to say he baptizes you with fire and with the Holy Spirit. The fire is for the chaff. The wheat get the Holy Spirit if they're gathered into the barn. That is recorded in other Gospels and we won't go into it today. But this was very offensive. We're all Jews. What do you mean some of us are going to get fire and some of us are going to get the Holy Ghost? That was a problem. It offended the religious pride. But when he says, Behold the Lamb of God, the first thing you should think of if you're a Jew is sacrifice, right? Well, let, anybody know what the very first sacrifice recorded as a lamb in the Bible is. Not the first sacrifice, but the first one recorded as a lamb. Mandy, the Bible scholar, got it. It is in Genesis 22, so turn there. Genesis is the first book in your Bible. The 22nd chapter in the Thompson chain is found on page 22. That ought to make it easy. Now, we know that sacrifice had been occurring for a long time. Cain and Abel both brought sacrifices. The Bible says that Abel brought of the portions of his flock. Okay, Probably a lamb, but the Bible doesn't say. We know that God provided Adam and Eve with skins. He killed something that they might have a shelter, a covering. It's assumed that they're lambs. Do you know why it's assumed that they're lambs? you know why it's assumed that Abel brought a lamb? Because when we very first see sin offerings in the Bible, it's a lamb. And it's a lamb displayed in the law. God's instruction, God's law prescribed it. It wrote it down. 
but they had been practicing this for centuries before. The law was given somewhere around 1600 B.C. Adam was 4000 B.C. So this had been existent in mankind for a long, long time. And I've got a book in the other room, or else I gave it to a guy who wants to be a missionary to this country. In Mandarin Chinese, you know how they write, it looks like little chicken feet have stamped on the page. It's little pictorial of things for letters. The symbol for redemption involves a lamb. The word redemption involves a lamb. It's something that's embedded in man's culture and always has been. But here we go. It's carried out. Genesis 22. Sometime later, God tested Abraham. He said to him, Abraham, here I am, he replied. Then God said, take your son, your only son, Isaac, whom you love and go to the region of Moriah. Sacrifice him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains I will tell you about. Early, that's kind of an odd request, isn't it? But it could make a point. I love Judah. Judah is, is my firstborn son. I mean, I love him. Would it be a hard message to hear to do something ugly to Judah? Early, but if you had always sacrificed something else as a burnt offering, if it had always been a lamb, this would get your mind to thinking, huh, why would I sacrifice my son? It's usually a lamb. Early the next morning, Abraham got up and saddled his donkey. He took with him two of his servants and his son Isaac. When he had cut enough wood for the burnt offering, he set out for the place God had told him about. On the third day, well, third day, Abraham looked up and saw the place in the distance. He saw a specific place God had told him about. Okay? Because this offering would have to take place at a specific place on the planet. You know, there's only one plot of land on the entire globe that God said He specifically bought for Himself. That was His, His chosen land. The whole earth is His. But He said of a special nation, of a special place on the globe, it was His. And within that place, there was an area for sacrifice. And Abraham looked up in the distance some 2,000 years before Jesus ever arrived and he saw a region called Moriah, the very place where Golgotha and Calvary occurred. He said to his servant, stay here with the donkey while I and the boy go up over there. We will worship and then we will come back to you. Amazing statement of faith, is that not? What did God tell him was going to happen? You're going to go sacrifice your son. What did Abraham say? We are going up there and we are coming back. Either the father of our faith is a liar or he was speaking in faith. He knew that God was the God that raised the dead. He knew that the anointed one would come to bring power over death. So anyway, Abraham took the wood for the burnt offering and placed it on his son Isaac. The father placed the wood on the son. And he himself carried the fire and the knife. As the two of them went on together, Isaac spoke up and said to his father, Abraham, Father, yes, my son, Abraham replied. The fire and the wood are here, Isaac said. But where is the lamb for the burnt offering? What a profound question. How did he know there should be a lamb? God never told them you had to sacrifice a lamb. At least it's not recorded. So how did he know there should be a lamb? Because mankind from the Garden of Eden on had been sacrificing outside of the garden until it was obscured by the flood and then they sacrificed wherever it seemed good to them. But it was already ingrained in man that for you to live, something else must die. That was in it. You know, even the Aztecs had human sacrifice where they killed one person 
took off his skin and put it on a high priest. Now, that is a horrible perversion. But can you even see in that perversion what they're trying to get at? What, what in them is crying out? We have to, there's something wrong with us. And something has to die that we can get in it. That's, that's a message, message of Christ even in paganism. So Isaac asked, Father, where is the lamb? That's a profound question and keep that in your mind. Abraham answered, God Himself will provide the lamb for the burnt offering, my son. And the two of them went on together. When they reached the place God had told him about, Abraham built an altar there and arranged the wood on it. He bound his son Isaac and laid him on the altar, on top of the wood. Then he reached out his hand and took the knife to slay his son. But the angel of the Lord called out to him from heaven, Abraham, Abraham. Here I am, he replied. Do not lay a hand on the boy, he said. Do not do anything to him. Now I know. Now, if he says now I know, it meant before that it was still questionable. Now I know that you fear God, because you have not withheld from me your son, your only son. Abraham looked up, and there in a thicket he saw a ram caught by its horns. He went over and took the ram and sacrificed it as a burnt offering instead of or in place of, or as a substitute for his son. So Abraham called that place, the Lord will provide. And to this day it is said, on the mountain of the Lord it will be provided. Now there's a profound shadow and type here about the king of the sheep caught by his authority in sin, in the product of sin, the thickets. But that's not what we're here to teach about today. We're here to teach about the chapter in John. Behold, the Lamb of God come to take away the sin of the world. And Isaac's question, Father, where is this Lamb? What was Abraham's answer? On the mountain of the Lord, it will be provided. Now, let me think about this for a minute. There was a Lamb provided on that mountain, was there not? Isaac didn't get killed. A Lamb was killed for Isaac, right? But that's not what Abraham named that mountain, is it? He didn't say, on this mountain the Lord has provided. What did He name it? He named it, on this mountain the Lord will provide. See, God had just provided, but Abraham understood that's not what this is about. This is about a day when the Lord will provide. See, Abraham understood that what he did was just a shadow, just an inkling of something that was to later happen. Now, Secular skeptics can read this and say he named the mountain that because there was a ram that was provided if this fable is even true. And they can say all the things they want, but it's very clear the tense is here and they're there for a reason. On the mountain of the Lord, it will be provided. This is important because in the book of John later, Jesus says, Abraham longed for my day and I tell you, he saw it and rejoiced. When did he see it? He saw it when he said, On this mountain, on the mountain of the Lord, in this very place, the Lord will provide. He knew it was coming and it was not in His day yet. He was longing for it. Indeed, all of mankind was longing for it. But still, there was no written instruction. There was nothing inscribed on stone that said that this would happen. There was one man with this experience. There was a legacy of promises that were as of yet not written down. A promise to Eve that she would have a son that would crush the head of the enemy. A promise written to uh, the man Judah about his son. A son who would come from his body that would receive a scepter and he would rule forever. These promises were there, but they were not written down yet. 
And so what did God do? He had a special nation, a special group of people. And He gave to them, these people who would be the human channel for this Lamb of God, the human channel for the Messiah, He gave them the commission to write and protect the Word of God. They literally inscribed its representative Ten Commandments, the ten that summed up the rest of it, in stone so that it wouldn't perish, so that the water wouldn't wash it away, so that the wind couldn't cover it up, in stone so that it would be an enduring symbol of God's promises because they understood that on the mountain of the Lord, one day it will be provided. So let's look at some of what they wrote down. Go from Genesis to Exodus. One book over. We're going to be in the 13th chapter of Exodus. John says, Behold, the Lamb of God come to take away the sin of the world. Well, what would a lamb mean? Why does Isaac say, Father, where is this lamb? Why does Abraham speak into the future and say on this mountain it will be provided rather than it has been provided? Well, when we get the law in the 13th chapter of Exodus, in the 14th verse, we begin to read these days. You'll notice I skipped over Exodus 12, the real common passage. We'll come back to that. Exodus 13, the 14th verse. We find out in the days to come when your sons ask you, what does this mean? Say to him, with a mighty hand, The Lord brought us out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. When Pharaoh stubbornly refused to let us go, the Lord killed every firstborn in Egypt, both man and animal. This is why I sacrifice to the Lord the first male offspring of every womb and redeem each of my firstborn sons. And it will be like a sign on your hand and a symbol on your forehead that the Lord has brought us up out of Egypt with a mighty hand. You find out in Exodus 13 that you had to sacrifice, and I cut that short, I'm sorry. You can read the next verse. You find out in Exodus 13 that every man who was in your household, every male child had to be redeemed. Not only do you find out that every male child had to be redeemed, you find out that every donkey that was born. Is that the next verse? Let me get to Exodus with you. I'm sorry. Exodus 12, Exodus 13, verse 12. You are to give over to the Lord the first offspring of every womb. All of the firstborn males of your livestock belong to the Lord. Redeem with a lamb every firstborn donkey. But if you do not redeem it, break its neck. Redeem every firstborn among your sons. And this would be like a sign on your forehead, like a sign on your hand. Promises were there in the Old Testament. Promises were there from Eve. They were there to the point where Isaac is asking as he's going to this mountain, Father, where is this lamb? Even after a lamb was provided, Abraham says, on this mountain it will be provided. Then when their law is given, it's instituted this principle. Every child that's born in your household has to be redeemed. Every animal born in your field has to be redeemed. And what were they redeemed with? And if it was not redeemed, what did you do to the donkey? You broke its neck. This was to begin to instill in the people. Every time you have a child born, something has to happen. A lamb has to die for it. Every time even your livestock have things born, something has to die. And if you don't do that, death remains on whatever you didn't redeem. 
What does redeem mean? It means to buy from. It means to purchase. It means to clear the debt. You are redeemed. You stand free and clear, but in someone else's possession. Now that is Exodus 13. Look at Leviticus 3. We're looking at some of the instances in which Jews would think about a lamb. One is in the redemption of their male children and in redemption of every male offspring of their livestock, a lamb had to die. Now, Matt and I were talking about 4th of July earlier. 4th of July is a uh, one-time-a-year event. So you think of it once a year. But what does it celebrate? It celebrates your freedom, your independence, right? What if every time... You did anything that expressed freedom, that expressed independence. You had to go shoot off fireworks. What if every time you crossed from one state to the other without visa, without papers, you had to shoot off fireworks? What if every time you went to vote, you got to shoot off fireworks? What if every time you met in a public assembly, you had to shoot off fireworks? What if every time you had to do anything that had to do with freedom, you had to shoot off fireworks first? Fireworks would be a very powerful symbol to you of freedom, would it not? You're going to find out that in the Israelites' life, the lamb symbolized something consistently, always. And it was not a once a year thing, it was an everyday thing. We know about the Passover, and we'll get to that later. Once a year they did a Passover, that's like Fourth of July. But every day they involved themselves with a lamb and a lamb dying for them. When their children were born, a lamb had to die. When their livestock, like a donkey, had uh, a male donkey born to it, Something had to die and it was a lamb. Now in Leviticus 3, verse 6, we see this. Speaking of a fellowship offering. If he offers an animal from the flock as a fellowship offering to the Lord, he is to offer a male or female without defect. If he offers a lamb, he is to present it before the Lord. He is to lay his hands on the head of his offering and slaughter it at the front of the tent of meeting. Then Aaron's son shall sprinkle its blood against the altar on all sides. From the fellowship offering, he is to bring a sacrifice made to the Lord by fire. Get this in your heads, guys. Not only when your children are born do you have to sacrifice a lamb. Not only when your donkeys have male donkeys born do you have to sacrifice a lamb. But now, when you fellowship with the Lord. How often do you fellowship with the Lord? When you just want to get close to God. When you want to have a fellowship, go get a lamb and sacrifice it. What is God trying to teach them? Keep in mind, this went on for 1,600 years. How often do you fellowship with the Lord? And you would repeat this ritual, ingraining into you something, so that one day when a prophet of God stood up and said, Behold the Lamb! It would mean something to you. One time Samuel was in a place with the Israelites. It's uh, 2 Samuel or 1 Samuel 7. He's in a place with the Israelites and they're fearful because of the Philistines. And they need to hear from God. You know what Samuel does? He does what the law had taught him to do. He goes and gets a suckling lamb and he kills it and then the Lord speaks to him. Why? Why must he kill a lamb for the Lord to speak to him? Because the Lord was trying to teach. In fellowship with me, it only, to have fellowship with me, it only occurs through the death of a lamb. That's what he's trying to teach. You move on from this idea that every male, whether it's a human or a donkey, has to be redeemed with a lamb, to the idea that to have fellowship with God, it must come through the death of a lamb. Flip over to Leviticus 5. In Leviticus 5, starting in the first verse, says, If a person sins because he does not speak up when he hears a public charge to testify regarding something he has seen or learned about, 
He will be held responsible. Sins of omission and sins of commission. Or if a person touches anything ceremonially unclean, whether the carcasses of unclean wild animals or of unclean livestock or of unclean creatures that move along the ground, even though he is unaware of it, he has become unclean and is guilty. Or if he touches human uncleanness, anything that would make him unclean, even though he is unaware of it, when he learns of it, he will be guilty. You're getting the impression you could be guilty for an awful lot, huh? Or if a person thoughtlessly takes an oath to do anything, whether good or evil, in any matter one might carelessly swear about, even though he is unaware of it, in any case when he learns of it, he will be guilty. Think about this kind of guilt, by the way. This is, I'll be there at 7 o'clock, I swear it. You can count on me, I promise it. God is telling them through this, when you do that and you're wrong, and you become aware of the fact that you are wrong, you're guilty. He's binding them over to the idea that they are guilty for a reason. Or if a person thought, listen, we did that. Verse 5, when anyone is guilty in any of these ways, he must confess in what way he has sinned. And as a penalty for the sin he has committed, he must bring to the Lord a female lamb or goat from the flock as a sin offering, and the priest shall make atonement for his sin. Who sinned? The man. Who died? The lamb. The man sins and the lamb dies for the man's sin. What is God trying to teach? Every child that's born to your household, a lamb will have to die to redeem it. Everything under your household, a man is in authority over his household all the way down to the livestock. Even when your livestock have calves, you are to redeem the males with a lamb. Even them. When you want to have fellowship with the Lord, when you just want to draw near, you want to hear His voice, bring a lamb. Now, when you sin in any way, whether it's something you didn't know about, whenever you find out about it, you may have just brushed up against a dead body, but when you become aware of the fact that you have touched something unclean, a lamb has to die. Now, guys, if this was 4th of July, you could forget about it for 11 months out of the year, right? How many times did you sin this week? Please, no numbers. You know? How many times did I fall short of... Here's how the Bible defines sin. The good that you know to do and don't do. That, that doesn't even go into all the things that you did that you shouldn't have done. <laughs> you got me? If every time I got upset with Bobby or Bobby got upset with me, one of us had to pack a lamb off, and we're going to learn to a specific place that may have been quite some distance from your house. If every time we touch something that was unclean, look, there goes Jennifer, there goes David, they're packing their lamb off. It's a public sign that you sinned. And it's a public sign that the lamb is the only thing that can pay the price for your sin. Why? Isaac asked the question, where is the lamb? The law began to teach people through great repetition. It gives me some excuse for repeating constantly. Through great repetition, the lamb is symbolic of something. The lamb redeems the firstborn males. The lamb is for fellowship. The lamb atones for sin. Do you know that in Leviticus 12, you even find out that when a woman has a child, whether male or female, a lamb has to die, and the lamb has to die to provide for the mother's purification. So Cassidy has a baby, right? If the baby is a boy, we've got to kill a lamb for the boy. If the baby is a boy or a girl, either one, we've got to kill a lamb for Cassidy. 
Lots of lambs are dying, huh? Pretty constant thing. And do you know every time one of these lambs dies, what you had to do? Every time? First off, it had to be spotless. You know? Anybody's ever raised livestock? No, they're not all spotless. So these are the special ones. What do you have to do to find out that it's spotless? You've got to go inspect it. You've got to look over it from head to toe. Then, you had to place your hand, your hands, not somebody else. I couldn't send Bobby with a lamb for me. I couldn't go to the store and buy a lamb and send Matthew as my representative. I had to go and have my hands on its head when its throat was cut and its blood was thrown on the altar. Why? Why did I have to be touching it when it was actually killed? So that I felt that. So that it made that impression on me. Wow, this innocent thing had to die for me. In many of the sacrifices, not only did you have your hand on its head when its throat was cut, but they threw the blood in your face. And then you went to a laver that had a polished bottom so that when you looked into it, you could see your dirty face and then you could wash it clean with God's water of the Word. This spoke a message to Israel. Everybody's got to be redeemed. Everybody's guilty. The Lamb is redemption. That's the message that it spoke. You find out in Leviticus 14, and we're going to read this one. Leviticus 14, verse 10. Keep hanging a right. Leviticus 14, verse 10. This has to do with any skin irritations. How many of you have had a skin irritation in your life? Okay, that's probably everybody in this room. You got poison oak? Poison ivy? We won't go into all the kind of skin irritations somebody can have. If you had a skin irritation, disease, let's just go the whole nine yards. You got leprosy. That's a pretty big skin irritation. You got some kind of white spots on you with no hair in them, Leviticus talks about. You know, your hair's falling out and you're splotchy. Yeah, yo, why are you looking at my head? <laughs> Leviticus 14, verse 10, On the eighth day he must bring two male lambs and one ewe lamb a year old, each without defect, along with three-tenths of an ephah of fine flour mixed with oil for grain and offering and one log of oil. The priest who pronounces him clean shall present both the one to be cleansed and his offerings before the Lord at the entrance to the tent of meeting. Then the priest is to take one of the male lambs and offer it as a guilt offering. Along with the log of oil, he shall wave them before the Lord as a wave offering. He is to slaughter the lamb in the holy place where the sin offering and the burnt offering are slaughtered. Like the sin offering, the guilt offering belongs to the priest. It is most holy. The priest is to take some of the blood of the guilt offering and put it on the lobe of the right ear of the one to be cleansed and on the thumb of the right hand and on the big toe of the right foot. Now, I taught about this with Aaron's sons when we taught about Adonai Bezek. Do you all remember that message? Adonai Bezek was a king who liked to cut off other kings' thumbs and big toes. And you say, why would he do that? Because it was humiliating. Without your thumb and your great toe, you have a hard time doing much. You remember the movie Meet the Parents and the whole joke about the opposable thumbs? Without your opposable thumbs, there's a lot of things you can't do. Without your great toe on your foot, you have a really hard time walking. I mean, it can be done, but it's not normal. So God had these people. You want to be healed of your diseases? You bring a lamb and you wear His blood on the signs of a man's strength. 
Put it on your right ear that shows you hear God's voice. Put it on your thumbs of your right hand that shows the hand that makes me a man, that shows that I'm different than every other creature on the planet, is redeemed by God. And on the right side, the side of strength, on my foot, my walk will be governed by God, by the blood of the Lamb. You remember that the first Scripture that we read that I botched badly in Exodus 13 talked about every male being redeemed and this being a sign for you, a sign on your head and on your hand, so that when your children ask you in the days to come what happened, you can tell them, God put this in every day of their life. He was preparing the people to receive the Lamb because He heard Isaac ask. In fact, the Bible says, before the creation of the world, God had determined He would slay a Lamb. Wow, that's deep, huh? That's a whole other Bible study. We find out in Leviticus 23, and turn there for me, please. What is today? What, what is, today is Halloween, but what are the origins of Halloween aside from the paganism and the witchcraft and all the garbage? What in its essence is Halloween? It was a celebration of the harvest. It just so happens that the people that celebrated harvest time did it through necromancy and other nasty things. And that a nasty church came along and couldn't change the people because it was nasty and they were nasty, and so they just created a new holiday. That's called syncretism. Then we moved on from there and we evolved it into something that's American where we just do trick-or-treats and eat. But every time a Jew wanted to celebrate the harvest, every time, they called it a Feast of First Fruits. And in their Feast of First Fruits, in Leviticus 23, verse 9, it says, The Lord said to Moses, Speak to the Israelites and say to them, When you enter the land I am going to give you, and you reap its harvest, bring it to the priest, a sheaf of the first grain you harvest. He is to wave the sheaf before the Lord, so that it will be accepted on your behalf. The priest is to wave it on the day after the Sabbath. On the day you wave the sheaf, you must sacrifice a burnt offering to the Lord, a lamb, a year old, without defect, together with its grain offering and two-tenths of an ephah of fine flour mixed with oil, an offering made to the Lord by fire, a pleasing aroma, and its drink offering of a quarter of hen of wine. You must not eat any bread or roasted or new grain until the very day you bring this offering to your God. This is to be a lasting ordinance from generations to come, wherever you live. Wherever the Israelites lived, when they went out to harvest their fields, and they brought the first sheep in from the fields, what did they have to do? Kill a lamb. So start to put this together. When your children are born, what do you do? When the mother it comes back from the midwives, and she needs to be cleansed, what do you do? When you get home and your donkey had a baby, what do you do? When you find out that you touched something dead or you sinned in some way, as soon as you find out about it, what do you do? When you decide that you want a fellowship with the Lord, you want to draw near to Him, what do you do? When it's time to eat and you go out to the fields to harvest, what do you do? Kill a lamb. This was a part of your daily life, being entrenched. Now, we're not going to read it because I don't want to run out of time, but Leviticus 17 teaches us the Israelites were killing lambs out in their fields. They heard God's command, so they were obedient. God says, no, 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 no. This will not do. You cannot kill a lamb in your field. You can't kill a lamb just anywhere you want. There is a specific place where this lamb must be killed and 
It must be done for the Lord. See, any innocent lamb wouldn't do. Any innocent lamb killed in any old place wouldn't do. Have you ever wondered, well, Jesus died for the sins of the people, but a lot of people have died? A lot of people have laid down their life for others, you know? A lot of people have died in revolutionary causes. They've done things for the benefit of others. We have soldiers in Iraq that have died for our freedom here. What's the difference? This lamb had to be killed in a specific place at a specific time and done for the Lord. Leviticus 17 makes that very clear. God wouldn't accept anything else. Not that it wasn't good. The lamb he was talking about had to be in a specific place and without defect. Now, when John said, Behold the Lamb of God, come to take away the sin of the world, you may have thought of the Lamb who redeemed every male in Exodus 13 if you were a Jew. You may have thought of the Lamb who allowed you to fellowship with God in Leviticus 3. You may have thought of the Lamb in Leviticus 5 that purified you from sin. You may have thought of the Lamb in Leviticus 12 that provided purification for your wife when she had children. In Leviticus 14, it may have caused you to think of the Lamb that cured all of your diseases. In Leviticus 23, you may have thought of the Lamb that allowed you to present your harvest to God and it to be blessed. In Leviticus 17, it may have caused you when John said, Behold the Lamb of God, to think of the Lamb that had to be killed in a specific place. But if nothing else, when John said, Behold the Lamb of God, one thing would have rang in your ears beyond all others. You would have remembered the day your nation began. When did Israel's nation begin? Huh? May 14, 1948. That's true in modern times, but Israel became a nation when they left Egypt as a nation under the prophet Moses. And what had to happen? Let's turn to Exodus 12. We'll read some of this. Exodus 12 on page 73 in the Thompson chain, verse 1. By the way, we have just had ten plagues in Egypt. Egypt was considered slavery. The reason you redeemed every firstborn male with a lamb was to show that you had been redeemed out of slavery. Not only was Egypt considered slavery, it was also considered a furnace of affliction. Not only was it slavery and a furnace of affliction, the Scripture says, it was also death. Why was Egypt death? Because God put ten plagues on Egypt, the last of which was, if you stay in Egypt, the firstborn, the sign of your strength, will be killed. But there was a remedy prescribed. Same remedy God had been giving all the way back to when Isaac said, where is the lamb? The Lord said to Moses and Aaron in Egypt, this month is to be for you the first month. The first month of your year, the first month of your year, tell the whole community of Israel that on the tenth day of this month, each man is to take a lamb for his family, one for each household. If any household is too small for the whole lamb, they must share one with their nearest neighbor, having taken into account the number of people there are. Get this, when you receive this lamb, it brings about a change, a change in your very calendar. It is a new beginning. Whatever months have already gone by, whatever history has already taken place, go away. Because this lamb begins a new month for you. A new day. Does this begin to remind you of anything? Like 2 Corinthians 5.16, If any man is in Christ, he is a new creation. Old things have passed away. 
All things have become new. See, the world hears us say those things and they think we made it up or it was just churchy sayings to make us feel better. It has been going on for 2,000 years before Jesus and had been written down 1,600 years before Jesus. One continuous theme through all 66 books of the Bible written by 44 different authors ascribing to God's inspiration in them. Why share it with your neighbors? Because this lamb was not for you alone. You'd be surprised to find out that a careful examination of the Scripture shows God cared about the Egyptians too. And some of them chose to partake of the lamb. And death passed over their household. And you know what they became after that? Israelites. Now, they didn't call them Egyptian Israelites. They didn't call them Messianic Egyptian Israelites. They didn't put any other weird labels on them. They became Israelites. How funny it is that we become Christians and Jews when they receive this very same lamb that was meant for them become Messianic Christians. Paul just called us the Israel of God and followers of the way. He considered us a sect of Judaism. It's Gentiles that have put different names on it. You share it with your neighbor. You are to determine the amount of lamb needed in accordance with what each person will eat. The animals you choose must be year-old males without defect. And you may take from the sheep or from the goats. Take care of them until the 14th day of the month when all the people of the community of Israel must slaughter them at twilight. What did all of Israel do? All of Israel slaughtered a lamb on the 14th of Nisan at twilight. Now, you'll be surprised to find out that if you read the Gospels very carefully, all the Gospels make it painfully clear that Jesus died the week of Passover. If you study even deeper and you reconcile some Jewish customs and you can get beyond all of the bad teaching out there, you'll find out that Jesus not only died the week of Passover, He died on the day that they slaughtered the lambs. You read a little carefully, you find out you reconcile Roman time and Jewish time because we are so handicapped being this far away from that culture, and you find out He died at the time they sacrificed the lambs. Now, all of Israel did that in Egypt. All of them had a lamb die for them. All of Israel had a lamb die for them in Jesus. They've just not all chosen to cover their ears and their hands and their feet with His blood. But Paul said a day's coming when all Israel will be saved. Then they were to take some of the blood and put it on the sides and tops of the doorposts, frames of the houses where they eat the lambs. Then the same night they are to eat the meat roasted over the fire along with bitter herbs and bread made without yeast. Why eat bitter herbs with this lamb? Because in receiving the Lamb of God as your lamb, there are many things that are bitter to you. There are things that are hard for you to do. The lamb requires you, when somebody slaps your face, to be kind to them in return. That is a bitter herb. It's like putting Tabasco in your eyes sometimes. I recently talked with a couple that have been greatly wronged by somebody in another state at every turn, attacked viciously, maliciously abused. And they had the opportunity to do something that would seem to justify, that would seem to rectify it. But in their hearts they felt like it was probably wrong. And then the lamb that they serve and whose blood they're covered wouldn't let them sleep as they contemplated it. And you know what? Judgment began with the house of God and they avoided coming under judgment because they chose not to offend their king. That's bitter herbs. Not everything in the Bible is, oh joy, good, I'm so glad, this is fun. Even when the prophets ate the literal word, something that was symbolic, them ingesting it, 
Something happened, do you remember? It was sweet in their mouth, like honey. Oh boy, good to taste. You want honey, but it turned bitter in their stomach. There's a part of the Word, there's a part of the Lamb that is sweet to you. It's redemption, it's awesome. And there's a part of it that is nasty and bloody and shows your guilt and is horrible. And how do you reconcile the two? You get conformed to what the Word says you need to be. You don't try to conform the Word to what you think it needs to be. Bitter herbs and bread made without yeast. Do not eat the meat raw or cooked in water, but roast it over the fire. Head, legs, and inner parts. Do not leave any of it till morning. There's a bunch of reasons you can't leave it till morning. I just don't have time to teach on this whole passage, just like I didn't do Genesis 22. The biggest reason it couldn't be left till morning is because the Scripture says, Today is the day of salvation. When you hear those words, He says, don't harden your heart as the forefathers did, but repent, because you are not guaranteed tomorrow. That doesn't mean you're not guaranteed it because you might die in a car crash. That doesn't mean you're not guaranteed it because you might die of a heart attack. That's what preachers say to get you to an altar, and it could be true. Here's the God's honest truth that is hard for theologians to accept. Today is the day of salvation because when you hear that, today Jesus is drawing you, and tomorrow, even though you're still alive, He may not. We always see this gentle lamb always with his arms open, ready to accept everyone. The Bible says you cannot be saved, John 6.44 says, unless the Spirit of the Father draw you to salvation. Now, why would it say that if He was always drawing all men? He's not. When you recognize, wow, I need to be saved, when you become aware of the sin, just like it said in Leviticus, then you realize, wow, a lamb for me. You must act on that then. You are not guaranteed tomorrow. You're not guaranteed it. That's why the lamb couldn't be left till morning. It also couldn't be left till morning because Jesus would not be left on the cross overnight. There are a million reasons. But Hebrews makes it clear today is the day of salvation. And if you wake up the next day and He's still drawing you, Praise God, that's mercy, that's grace, but it is not guaranteed to you. This idea of, oh, I'll wait until thus and oh, you foolish guy. The Scripture says you don't know that this very night your life might be required of you. There, he came for me in a day when there was just, I, I couldn't say no. I'd been flirting with the idea for years. I'd felt guilt for years. I believed who He was for years, but I became obedient to Him in a single day. Doesn't that all mean that I got it all right? Not at all. But in a single day, I decided to be obedient to Him. Do not leave any of it till morning. If some is left till morning, you must burn it. This is how you are to eat it, with your cloak tucked in your belt and the sandals on your feet and your staff in your hand. Eat it in haste. It is the Lord's Passover. Why would you eat it with your cloak tucked in your belt? Why would you eat it with sandals on your feet? Why eat your dinner with your staff in your hand? That's not normal. How many of you go sit down at the table and pack your bags ready to go while you're eating at the table? It's because when you receive this lamb, Israel was taught you need to get ready to change the state you're in to head to a new place. Now, all we can think about is heading to heaven. That is not what it's talking about. It's talking about bringing a change in your circumstances, leaving your old life behind, walking in a new life. Your old life was slavery, disobedience, and death. The new life is obedience to God in life. 
Why was the book of John written? It was written that you might believe Jesus is the Christ. And in believing in that, you will find life. So why is He announced this way? Because what we have not read yet, and I'm not going to, goes on to say Israel did this year after year to commemorate the Passover. So that when their children asked, why do we do this? The children would be taught. Now, if Bobby taught me, and I taught Judah, and Judah taught his kids, and those kids taught their kids, this would carry on through generations. They would know it every year. So that in John, which is where we need to turn back to, when John the Baptist looks and says, Behold, the Lamb of God come to take away the sin of the world. They would realize, wow, this is the Passover Lamb who's come to take away our sin. This is the Lamb that redeems our firstborn. This is the Lamb that heals our diseases. This is the Lamb that will bring us fellowship. So why did they not all fall down and get saved? They didn't all fall down and get saved because they believed every bit of what I'm telling you. But it was not what they were expecting. And we have a very hard time changing our conception of God. We want God to fit into our framework instead of us fitting our thoughts into God's framework. They were waiting for fiery Elijah. They were waiting for the anointed king to drive out the Romans. They were waiting for a figure like Moses to stand up and bring plagues on the Romans. And they got a gentle lamb ready for sacrifice And that's not what they wanted. They were ready for the Messianic age now. They wanted the resurrection now. They wanted to be chief among the nations now. Not unlike our preachers on TV that want to be rich now. They want healing now. They want all of these things now. And tell you if you don't get it, something's wrong with you. No, friends, we are waiting for perfection. Perfection has not yet arrived. We simply claim it by faith, believing that it is going to arrive because God said it. And we have, get this, the Scripture says, tasted of the age to come. When you have a healing experience, when you prophesy, when you speak in other tongues, you have tasted of the age to come. That does not mean that the age to come has arrived on earth now. Until you walk out there and see the wolf laying down with the lamb, it has not happened yet. We don't at present see everything subject to the Lamb. But in our hearts, we are already subject to the Lamb. So we are the firstborn among all creation. We are the first to step in line with God's will and everything else will. You all in John? Isaac said, Father, the first time a Lamb ever shows up in the Bible, he says, Father, I see the wood. I see the fire. In other words, I see death. That's what the wood and the fire were. They were for killing. The fire to burn, the knife to kill. I see the wood and the fire. But where is the lamb? Mankind has had before him always. I see the wood and the fire. I see death. My body's sagging. I'm aging. It's hurting. It won't heal. Whatever it is. I see that. But where is the lamb? I see the problem. I'm in death. I see it. But where is the solution? So when John came baptizing, he said, hey, you need to repent. The kingdom of God is at hand. The axe is at the root. It's ready to chop down these trees. You need to make level paths for the Lord. In other words, telling them, change your conceptions. Change what you think. You need to get ready to receive something that was not what you expected. The herald showed up to announce the coming of the king. And his announcement was, get ready. You guys got it wrong. 
Your leadership is wrong and you've got it wrong. So they saw the death. They saw the wood, the fire, but where is the Lamb? And John says, Behold, the Lamb of God come to take away the sin of the world. We haven't read it yet and we're not going to because we're out of time. But some, a remnant, heard, they received John's message and they went with the Lamb of God that very day. said they spent the whole day with Him. Our next message will go into some of that, but I want you to know that the Lamb of God came to heal diseases. He came to redeem the firstborn, to bring fellowship, to do all of those things. But the number one thing that the Lamb of God came to do was to cause you to cross from the power of death into the power of life. And that is the subject matter of John, which is what we're teaching. Remember, this Sunday is to substitute for Wednesday's teaching in John that God erased. The foundation that John lays is, Behold, the Lamb of God come to take away the sin of the world. And what he begins to teach after that is, He will cause you to cross from death to life. That's what he records in the book. The Gospels all record Jesus' death at Passover and the apostles refer to Jesus as the Passover Lamb. 1 Corinthians 5.7 says this, Get rid of the old yeast that you made. Be a new batch without yeast as you really are. For Christ, our Passover Lamb, has been sacrificed. Therefore, let us keep the festival, not with the old yeast, the yeast of malice and wickedness, but with bread without yeast, the bread of sincerity and truth. And in the book of Revelation, we see Isaac's lamb provided on the mountain of the Lord and all of creation worshiping him, saying, worthy, worthy, worthy is the lamb, worthy to open the seals, worthy to reign with glory and power, worthy is the lamb. The book begins in Genesis. It means the beginning. And it says, where is the lamb? Then it explains all that the Lamb will do. And in the New Testament, they say, Behold, here is the Lamb. But the people don't understand. And the New Testament ends with the statement, Worthy is the Lamb. He's received all honor, all glory, all power, and sovereignty belongs to Him and His saints on the earth forever. That's the story of the Bible. And it all starts in John 1. <laughs> Isn't that beautiful? Whatever your state is today, remember this Lamb does these things. We got four minutes and we're closing with these statements. Every male in a household can be reborn, redeemed with a lamb. Why the male? Because the males were the head of the household and everything under them could be redeemed. All fellowship is allowed only through the lamb. The Bible's very clear. You cannot have fellowship with God except through Jesus. Now, I'm sorry. I'm sorry people don't like that. It seems so narrow-minded. In Israel... God even killed the first two priests under Aaron because they did not do it in the prescribed way. They thought they had a way that was as good as God's way. And God killed them because the example had to be the way is narrow and only a few find it, though the message goes out to everybody. The Lamb provides purification from sin. The Lamb provides purification even for your children. The Lamb will cleanse all of your diseases. If you haven't seen it yet, you will see it in the fullness of the kingdom that is coming to the earth. The Lamb will provide you with the harvest that you need. And the Lamb was provided in a specific place. The same one that Abraham looked up and saw. The same place that Isaac asked, where is the Lamb? 
The same place that Abraham said, on the mountain of the Lord, it will be provided. The Lamb showed up in that place at that time. And you and I are here to receive the Lamb. You receive Him as your King. You eat the bitter herbs along with the sweet honey because you've decided that His way is better than your way. Y'all stand up and let's pray.